Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. From the very first tales of the supernatural, vampires have held a special place in the hearts of storytellers. Over the years, they've been reinvented again and again. In movie terms, we've had the elegant and the elfin in Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, while Gary Oldman gave us a seductive but sinister version of Dracula himself in Coppola's film. With regards to books, we've had endearing but vicious vampire children in Let the Right One In, and Stephen King himself claims that his vampire novel Salem's Lot is one of his favourites, linking the dying of small towns with the curse of the vampire. With the exception of the Swedish Let the Right One In, most of our well-known vampires are decidedly Western. But in The Vampires of El Norte, Isabel Cañas has created her own brand of very savage vampires that face off against, against vaqueros. Isabel is joining us in this episode to talk about what inspired her Mexican vampires and what her novel says about being a woman in 1840s Mexico fighting not just against supernatural beings, but against the expectations of society. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your books. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I love, love, love this podcast. So getting the email from my publicist saying that this was in the books, I was like, yes, I'm so excited. Oh, it's lovely to have you. (laughs) I am a Mexican-American speculative fiction author. I live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm a recovering academic, so we might get a little nitty and gritty when it comes to my research and talking about folklore and um, the kinds of things that informed Vampires of El Norte, uh, which is, I guess you could bill it, and it has been billed as a supernatural Western set in what is now South Texas in 1846, at the beginning of the Mexican-American War. And it's about two childhood sweethearts named uh, Nena and Nestor, who are separated at the age of 13 um, because of a tragedy and are thrown together again nine years later on the road to war. And they have to defend their home rancho from threats both human and supernatural. And the supernatural, like spoiler alert, is the vampires. (laughs) I have to admit, I've read lots of vampire novels, but none quite like yours. So how are vampires traditionally represented in Mexican literature? Are they like you present them in your books, which is kind of not quite human, but humanoid and sort of vicious and savage and unnatural? Is that what they are in Mexican literature or is there a a branch of them in there? Do tell us. Well, yeah, when it comes to Mexican, when it comes to literature, I, I would I would draw a line between literature and folklore. This is my academic coming out, <laughs> but also there are, I guess, many kinds of vampires when we talk about literature and folklore in Mexico. I think Mexican literature, in particular, in terms of genre literature, we have Silvia Moreno Garcia's um, Certain Dark Things, which features a vampire in modern Mexico City. It is fantastic, but. There, when it comes to modern literature, there's a lot of influence from the West. The Anglo-American tradition um, of the vampire is, of course, something that occurs in pop culture. When it comes to folklore, however, when I was researching this book, I came across some interesting stuff. Um, the original 
idea that was like the seed of this novel um, took place in a different part of Mexico than which is then where the book ended up being set, which is now South Texas, which is where my family has hailed from uh, for generations. Originally, I was looking at more central Mexico, maybe like in the environs of Mexico City. In the state of Tlaxcala, there are legends of what are called blood-sucking witches or Tlahuelpuchis. And these entities, I guess, could fall under the heading of vampire, given their predilection for, for blood. They're very different from the Western European vampire that most people are familiar with from pop culture. So I was like fascinated um, by these creatures who are, I believe, exclusively women. And it is their affliction is something that they are born with and that manifests with puberty. So I was like, there is so much to pick apart there. Um, and when I was putting the book together, I realized that they deserve their own novel. And so I was kind of back to square one. And um, after like bouncing some ideas back and forth with my editor, um, I decided to move the novel geographically to South Texas because what had happened was there was this character called Nestor, who walked into the book fully formed. He swaggered, that is. He swaggered into the book completely fully formed um, with a strong voice and a strong family background of having been from come from South Texas and having experienced the Mexican-American War and all of the ramifications that, that that had on his identity. And my editor was like, that, that is gold. And I was like, oh, obviously, you know, my family is from this little pocket of the world and has a lot of like <laughs> identity crises through the genera- through the generations because of it. Uh, and so I ended up moving the book there. I-, I had not a blank slate to play with when it came to my vampires, but I had a lot of freedom. And I knew from the get-go that I did not want your average bloodsucker, so to speak. I absolutely adored Dracula when I read it when I was 17. I read it like under the desk at school. Um, I was obsessed with it. And then of course went straight into Twilight because it was the year of our Lord 2007. And that was, that was our bread and butter guys. And I loved it. And I love, I, I have loved vampires for a very long time and have written vampires before. Um, but I, I knew I wanted something different. I knew, I just felt like what the book needed was something a little monstrous <laughs> And when it comes to the kind of media that I enjoy consuming, like in terms of podcasts, I, I went through like a big lore phase and some of my favorite episodes, like very early on in, in Laura's catalog are ones about cryptids, you know, like the Thunderbird or the Jersey Devil or the Chupacabra, like stuff like that. Just, ah, I loved it. And I think the reason that shit appeals to me is because um, my dad would take us camping quite a lot when we were kids. Not because he's like likes it or is any good at it, but because he read like one parenting article that said that camping is good for forming family bonds, blah, blah, blah. And so decided to take us all camping. And so me and my three sisters um, would very badly set up tents in the in the national and state parks of Southern California and, you know, tromp around. And at night, um, things got really spooky things get really scary for me because one thing that I makes me very skittish even now as an adult. And one of the reasons that I refuse to camp with my husband is I don't like the feeling of being out in the woods with 
my back exposed. Whenever I go into a restaurant or cafe, my husband always knows to let me sit with my back to the wall. <laughs> it's like, it's a thing. It's a thing. And uh, when you're out in the woods at night or in the hills at night and uh, there's nothing around, there are no walls, there's nothing really watching your back, you don't really know what else is out there. And if there is something out there, there's no wall to put your back to. Um, so you can face it. It's kind of like you're exposed on all sides. And that was the fear I decided to play with. And so in order to, to really nail that, uh, we settled on something, uh, a little cryptozoological in terms of the vampires. Well, that sounds fascinating. And I'm like you, I was reading, um, books under the desk, although mine were nonfiction books about monsters and vampires and stuff like that. So I I could totally do that. Although I'm not sure I kind of agree with the Twilight thing, although I I think I was past the age when it came out that it was obviously targeted at. Although it did remind me of being in love at 17 years old. It was, it was well written from that point of view, but, but before we go on to other vampires, let's stick with yours. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask when you were looking at the literature, but more probably, probably the folklore of Mexican vampires, did you find, any particular tropes within it that are either the same as or different to Western vampires? So you've got the whole thing with garlics and crosses and cutting the heads oh, yeah, off yeah. and things like that. So what, what? how do you defeat a Mexican vampire um, in Mexican literature and without too many spoilers in your book? Yeah, so without, I don't think this is a huge spoiler, but when I, when I was doing research about um, folklore that comes from South Texas in particular, because Mexico is an extremely culturally diverse uh, country. And so there are lots of, there's a multiplicity of folklores that we're playing with when we talk about Mexico writ large. So I speak specifically to Northern Mexico, um, Northeastern Mexico, which is where my family is from, and South Texas. And so all of my folklore research was for this book was very, very focused on that particular, um, that particular region. And one thing that I stumbled across was, you know, not a whole lot of vampires, not a whole lot of some bloodsuckers, but uh, nothing that you would necessarily call vampire. But one thing I found was that there are quite a lot of different kinds of monsters and a lot of different kinds of witches. And some of the witches were bloodsuckers. Some of the witches took off their skin and flew around at night as skeletons to eat babies. Um, there, so I found some really interesting monsters and there's a gendered aspect to it as well that I could probably write an article or three about at this point, but the way of defeating a lot of these monsters or one method of protecting yourself from these monsters was salt. And I had, um, the privilege of speaking with a writer who focuses on folklore from the Caribbean, but one thing we ch- chatted about was monsters, witches, bloodsuckers, uh, cryptids, and there was a parallel in the use of salt as a protective measure and as a weapon against these kinds of critters and monsters that lurk in the dark. So there are no, there's no garlic in this book. Uh, there are no crosses. Uh, one thing that the characters do rely on is salt. So I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about like <laughs> your fears uh, around, you know, these monsters in the woods, which by the way, you would hate where I live. Uh, <laughs> I live in the middle of nowhere on the side of a mountain. And we currently have a family of chingale, which are the European wild boar in the, in the garden. And I can hear them like, you know, snorting and snuffling and it's 
I am such a city slicker. I would not vibe with this. (laughs) Yeah, it's terrible. Um, But yeah, it was interesting how you were saying like, you know, you would never even like sit somewhere where your back is is not like Mm. covered. But then like, why did you just want to be like, oh my God, I just need to throw my characters into like the danger, the absolute, like everything that I would never do. (laughs) Well, it's half the joy of writing horror specifically, I think, is um, it's a safe place for you to play with the things that you're afraid of. And it's almost like a fenced playpen where you can be like, okay, this is something I actually am very afraid of. Why am I afraid of it? And like kind of just look it in the face, but it's safely shackled, you know? You're, <laughs> you're facing down the lion, but it's behind glass at the zoo. And I, I think horror is very freeing in that regard. And I, I actually, I have a lot of thoughts about the craft of writing horror and what it means, but what it means to me specifically as a person has meant that, you know, I didn't used to write horror. I've always been drawn to darker themes in fantasy, darker imagery, but I was like my, my bread and butter when I was growing up and starting to write. And my first two novels before I wrote the Hacienda that died on submission were all fantasy. And I pivoted to horror and in 2020. And since then I have found that I'm forced to be a lot more vulnerable in my writing because you have to be in horror Because I think the reader, the bullshit sniff test with horror readers is um, they can tell when the writer is not also afraid of the thing that they're writing about. And that's part of what makes horror sing is uh, the writer really bearing their bones and getting at something that makes them scared. So yeah, I'm super afraid of being out in, 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 in the dark at night because critters and Lord knows what else. So I will put my characters there. And, you know, like, I'll walk behind them, but, you know, (laughs) I'm safe on the other side of the computer screen. (laughs) They're the ones who have to worry. Okay. We also, we mentioned earlier that, like, a lot of the Mexican vampires have had a lot of European influence. And I know that Lucy is about to, to shout when I mention this. But basically, and like you mentioned also, Twilight there is a lot of, you know, the the vampires being sexy, being broody, being, you know, they're just, they're really hot. And there's, you know, we can go in all about you know, the sexual repression and, you know, the sexual awakenings that vampires can represent and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, <clears throat> okay, Lucy, this is your cue to mention your favorite hot vampire. <laughs> Gary Oldman! <laughs> yeah, so Lucy's a big fan of uh, Gary Oldman as Dracula. <laughs> oh, God, big time. It's it's, the, it's my favourite Dracula. It's my favourite vampire movie, hands down. You know, I've actually never seen it. <laughs> okay, well, that's your homework after this. <laughs> my husband and I observe spooky season very religiously. So when once, honestly, in my mind, this book coming out in the middle of August kicks off spooky season, like... Screw the fact that it's still summer. Screw the fact that it's still really warm outside. Spooky season is now. (laughs) But one thing we do is we watch all the things that scare us. (laughs) So we're slowly creeping into like scarier and scarier movies and like just atmospheric movies, ghosty movies, stuff like that. So got to put that Dracula on the list this year. Definitely. (laughs) 
Anyway, sidetracked. My point was going to be, you know, you you have these influences, and and as you said, you you love some of these stories that have these really sexy vampires. So, why did you want to get rid of like the sexiness and go instead for this animalistic, monstrous kind of thing? Well, I think there are two answers. Uh, the first one is very pragmatic. And that is that um, I come from a background of having written and reading quite a lot of YA and trying to break into the industry in YA and failing to break into the publishing industry through the YA track. And of course, vampires are um, in, in after the, the twilight wave of vampires, uh, they were very dead for a while. <laughs> naturally people still wanted to read about them and there are new vampire books coming out all the time. And everybody, uh, there are people who crow about vampire renaissances across the board. Um, but I, I don't think anything will ever measure up to the way it was in like the late aughts and, and like up until maybe like 2011 or so. But I knew having failed twice to break into the industry writing fantasy that a lot of the rejections I got from publishers were heartbreaking. Naturally rejections are, they're difficult, but some of them were, you know, a little coded. A lot of them were like, this is not Mexican enough. This is too Mexican. You know, there is a pressure on marginalized writers to be better, to write something fresh, to write some, to to submit manuscripts that are already perfect, you know, rather than, um, you know, being imperfect. And then you edit them. I found that one thing my agent was very frustrated with when she was trying to sell my first two books was it was a new and different experience than she had had selling YA from um, clients of hers who were white women. That was the pragmatic aspect of it. I knew that if I wrote a classic sexy vampire, that it might not sell because that's over, isn't it? It's boring now. It's done. It's been done. And it's like, well, yeah, it's been done, but it hasn't been done by writers like me. (laughs) So like, where are, like, do I one day want to write like an absolutely smoking hot Mexican vampire who's like just as sparkly as Edward, maybe? Uh, I don't know. And I was more of a Jacob girl myself. So maybe not. But I, uh, I absolutely would. But I, I knew, being very pragmatically minded about my career, that that might not fly. And so I turned the car around and I drove in the opposite direction. <laughs> but also, I think, because that was just something that suited, it was just what suited the story. I struggled with the, this book because... It bends, a, it juggles a lot of genres. It juggles a lot of large pieces in terms of the story because there's this romance uh, that is the structural DNA of the book. There's a strong historical element. There's a war. There are historical figures who wander in and out of the middle of the book. <laughs> um, and then there are these speculative elements. And oh yeah, it's a Western. <laughs> there's just a lot going on. And so I had to, I actually remember when I was revising this book, making a list of like 
all the vampire characteristics that I had in earlier drafts. Like there was all this stuff going on, like drawing from folklore, drawing from, you know, my favorite European, like classic vampire characteristics, like the fact they can turn into bats, you know, for example, and like just kind of crossing out and circling the ones I was going to keep. And it was that exercise that allowed me to pare down uh, my vampires and shape them into what they became in the book. But yeah, I would love to write, you know, a smoking hot, sexy vampire. You know, maybe now I, as of this morning, am a USA Today bestselling author. So now that this book is selling well, maybe they'll let me do that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's brilliant. Oh, no, I'm, <laughs> it's, it's kind of nice to hear that that story had a happy ending. So often it doesn't. <laughs> I know. I know. It's pretty, it's, it's rough. I think being a Mexican-American and breaking into this industry has been a wild ride and it's been very humbling. And I think humility is essential in this industry. And I don't know if a lot of writers have enough of it. Thank you for being honest. Um, because again, I think publishing is quite opaque sometimes. And Deeply. Um, yes. Jumping back in to um, talking about vampires, talking about your novel. We are, of course, an intersectional feminist podcast. And so we do like to have a bit of a, a you know, a, a dive into talking about gender mm-hmm. and the role of women. And Something that really kind of jumps out, uh, it, forgive the pun, <laughs> in a horror <laughs> book. <laughs> um, something that jumped out at us was, you know, this idea of victims of vampires tending to be female almost mm-hmm. exclusively. And there's definitely, Meg mentioned it earlier, there's this idea of the vampire representing a sexual sexual awakening or some sort of, um, you, it, it, the vampire is never the same for you know, for, for men, it's a, it's a totally different focus. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, in your novel, you have, it's, it's mostly men who are targeted by the vampires rather than women, which is something that we kind of almost think is exclusively the case. So was that something that you kind of had in your head? Were you aware that that trope existed? Um, and, or was it just a kind of coincidence that as part of your world building that it ended up that way? It was both a coincidence and something I was a little bit aware of. One thing that was very practical when it came to plotting this novel was like, where did the vampire attacks occur? Out in the chaparral, far from the home. And on a working ranch, as is the Rancho Los Ojuelos in this book, it's like it has vaqueros. So you have cowboys who are herding the cattle far from the ranch, alone in the dark at night or in the pre-dawn. So on a practical level, like that is where the attacks would happen and who are the people who are out, you know, doing that kind of work far from the center of the ranch, it would be men. Um, There's another aspect that I don't want to talk about a whole lot because it's a, it's a huge spoiler in terms of like um, the role of the vampires in the latter half of the book and especially the ending. Uh, So I'm not going to get into that, but I was aware of the fact that like a lot of, I think more, I was aware that women are often the victims of vampire attacks. Yes. Um, I'm currently rereading Dracula uh, by uh, reading the newsletter, Dracula daily. If you're, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, highly recommend. It's great. You get newsletters like in the form of a Substack newsletter, you get updates from Dracula because it's written like 
in an epistolatory format where everything is dated. So over the course of the latter half of a year from, I think, May to November, you get uh, updates from Dracula. Oh, so good. Um, But I was, I think, more cognizant of the fact that in horror writ large, there is so much violence against, against women. And that is something I am careful to navigate in my work because I think a lot of that in my reading, I've encountered a lot of sensational violence that just feels exploitative in a way and cheap. And, um, you know, if I'm going to have a throwaway body in my book, I don't want it to be a woman's. I am very careful about this. Um, when women die in my books, because, you know, these are horror books, there's a body count. Um, I am very intentional about who drops dead and why and about how they die. It's something that I think about quite a lot. I think we're all having a huge big cheer for that. That is exactly what we want to hear on this podcast and exactly how we feel. So thank you for saying that as well. That's that's just wonderful. I also wanted to talk about um, feminism within your book in the point of view of Nena and her brother Felix. One of the things that struck me is that they can both say the exact same things to their parents but their parents only listen to Felix and it's a case of Nana's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then Felix goes in there. Oh, that's a really good idea. It's, it's almost like mansplaining or the corporate, the corporate bullshit room, but in a family setting. So an older brother having sway over parents on behalf of sisters, sister is a common theme of both historical and historical fantasy stories. So what aspects of this trope did you want to address in your representation? Coming up in a very patriarchal household myself um, and getting like a double dose of patriarchy, one from the Mexican background and the other from the Catholic Church, I, this is something that I, I can't escape it. I can't run away from it in my books. It definitely influences, especially because my books have, hey, presto, a Mexican and often Catholic setting. So um, it is something that is at the front of my mind as I write family dynamics, as I write women moving through their worlds, as I write women chasing agency and holding on to it for dear life in these worlds, in my books. Um, and so when it came to Nena and her relationship with her parents and with Felix, there were two things that I was thinking about. The first was that when I like sat down with my grandma and I was like, tell me all your spooky stories, like, give me the good stuff. Like, of course, let's chat La Llorona, but like, what else? What do you know about El Cuco, for example? She was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my dad, uh, or we had, we heard spooky stories about El Cuco, but if, if my dad really wanted to scare us, you know what he would say? Your mother will hear about this (laughs) because my great grandmother was a very steely person. And that like really hit home for me because I was like, yeah, we can do all the spooky, scary stuff um, within this cultural setting and have it really speak to readers. But what makes this book authentic isn't the fact that, you know, there's vaquero terminology thrown around. There is Spanish in the book. The folklore is correct. What makes this book authentic to me is the dynamic within the family. Of course, Nana is terrified of her parents. Of course, she feels like she lacks a voice. Um, because, like, I hate to say it, but in the world that I grew up in, the voice of a man was always so much louder and believed first. Um uh, And so that is something that Nena struggles with at the beginning of the book and has to grow and find her voice in a way because she, she uses Felix as a mouthpiece. She's like, okay, this is the way the world is. Like I can say like, you know what? 
let's have pork for dinner and Felix could say the same and they will listen to Felix. Or for example, at the beginning of the book, she says, I want to be a curandera. I want to go to war and prove that I'm good at being a curandera and take care of these soldiers, but no one's going to listen to me. So I'm going to make Felix suggest it to my father. Um, she uses, she plays within, uh, she, she, she plays her parents like marionettes using Felix. And in a way that's a bit unfair to Felix, <laughs> But also she's she's playing within the confines of the patriarchy and making it work for her. But there are limits to that. And she knows that there are limits and she knows she's running on borrowed time because her father talks and her mother too, they talk big game about marrying her off for political reasons. Um, they as landowners in this uh, period of time, it would have been a good idea actually with their region under threat from um, invaders to make alliances with other powerful ranches and haciendas in the area. And how do you do that best? A marriage, of course. So yeah, I think Nena, like many a heroine in a historical novel, doesn't want to be told who to marry. I get it. Like you were mentioning how there's this sort of women constantly fighting to have agency over themselves. And I felt like that was a really strong thread in the novel because you have Nena, as you said, like wanting to prove that she has the skill to go out, go to war and, you know, be first aid on the front line. And you have this nice little comparison between Nessa's grandmother, who is kind of the wise medicine woman of, mm -hmm. well, I would just say, you know, the, the typical wise woman of the village, but obviously here's the- A ranch of a village. Yeah, yeah. It's like okay. a small community. Yeah, it's a small community. Yeah, okay. Um, but she's very well respected. But then Nena, mm. like, nobody really respects her very much. And it seemed to me as, like, when I was reading it, that the biggest difference between them were, like, the class difference. So- mm. Nena's the the rich girl. She's got all the privilege and so on. And Nessa's grandmother is from the lower class. She's kind of, I, I want to say, you know, like the, the old wise person is always mm -hmm. sort of on the periphery and that sort of thing. And it's like Nena's too central. She's too, uh, she's sold out. She is too mainstream to be... Yeah the the wise woman on the um on the outside but anyway I was just wanting to know a bit more about like what you were hoping to say about the roles of women and what the class differences kind of impacted on their roles yeah I'm glad you asked this question because it really makes me think because like often when I'm writing a story I'm just kind of chasing the story and things creep in um that I don't expect or anticipate. And often it's through conversations with readers and with uh, people like you where I actually get a chance to look back and think like, oh shit, I did do that, didn't I? And one thing I think about in terms of the difference between Abuela, Nestor's Abuela on the rancho and Nana is not just the class difference because yes, Nana is... Um, as the daughter of the landowner, the ranchero, she is valuable and therefore must be controlled. There's also an aspect of the age difference and sexuality. Abuela, being in like her 80s, is not, you know, the fact that she has agency 
and power in her agency is not threatening to the patriarchy because she's old. You know, she is, she's not a sexual being in the culture in which I was raised and the household in which I was raised, young women must be controlled because of their sexuality. There was quite a lot of um, fighting I did against that, a lot of champing at the bit, but fundamentally that was a a large part of my upbringing was the controlling of young women um, because they were sexual beings. And I think for Nena in particular, being restrained in her role on the rancho of course she she chafes at it naturally that's she's pretty headstrong and definitely wants more agency because she sees her brother having freedom she sees nestor having left and having enormous freedom that makes her mad um but the reason that she is controlled is partially because of her privileged class upbringing and partially because she's young and um yeah I'm glad you asked that because it's not something that I had reflected on, but it absolutely speaks to uh, the kind of upbringing I had and it it wormed its way in. And I'm like, God damn it. I have more to talk about with my therapist on Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, um, you're welcome. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I I found it really interesting. And yeah, as you say, it's, it's like a depressing fact of the patriarchy we live in that we basically once women are old, we're no longer sexual beings, then they don't really care what we do. That's when we can have freedom because yeah. we're not objects you know, to them fuck anymore. Fuck yes, that crone, give me that crone life. I'm ready for it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's something that I reflect on now, having just entered motherhood um, a few months ago. It's like I'm entering this new, uh, like I've leveled up in the patriarchy, like in a way that means that like, will men pay less attention to me now? Are they not looking? Yes, we meet at dawn. (laughs) Those are some fantastic stories, not to mention your exceptional book that we really enjoyed. And it's been so wonderful to have you on, Isabel. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.